Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Wendy Lower, the author of The Ravine, A Family, A Photograph, A Holocaust Massacre Revealed. She's a professor of history and the director of the Magrublian Center for Human Rights at Claremont McKenna College in California. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Lauer. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. This is an audio medium, but I'm going to try to describe a picture for you as best I can. Also, I'm going to post it on our Twitter profile the day that this episode is released, so you can take a look at it as you listen along to this episode. So this picture is in black and white. Five uniformed men are standing around a woman who is bent over and holding the hand of a child to her left. Two of those men in uniform have rifles pointed. One of them is firing in a cloud of dust directly at the woman's head. She is in the process of beginning to fall over and taking the child with her into a large pit that has been dug. There is some clothing on the ground around them. And the whole scene is surrounded by trees. You found this picture, Professor, in 2009. Where and how did you find the picture? Well, it came to me, actually. Um, I was in the archives of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in August 2009. So about 68 years, almost 70 years after the photograph was taken in October 1941. And I was actually at the museum doing research on a perpetrator who was still alive in Germany, living outside of Frankfurt. His name was Bernhard Frank. Um, he was like the third person down from Himmler. So he was one of the most high, he was one of the highest ranking SS officers still alive. And so I was with a team of people and we were digging through archives trying to find kind of a smoking gun, kind of find more evidence about his crimes. We were interviewing him. He was admitting certain things. So we were kind of building that case. Um, and by the way, he was um, indicted, but he died in 2011 before he, the trial could actually take place. So as we were pursuing this perpetrator, um, I was at the microfilm reader going through SS records um, and two journalists had arrived at the museum. It's typical in DC that people come in from the street, come from you know different, all over the world actually, to bring things to the museum, to bring artifacts and photographs and objects to find out more about them and sometimes to donate these items to the collection. These two journalists had come from an institute in Prague that was studying um, the crimes of kind of totalitarianism. And they had uncovered the, these, this photograph in what was the former KGB archive in Prague. So it had not seen the light of day. It you know, had not been researched. It was sitting there, it had been part of an investigation against the photographer, but was not um, part of our kind of memory or part of our, our uh, kind of public record, official record of the Holocaust. And I was immediately struck by it because as you just described it, we have what is a kind of action shot. We have murder in process, genocide happening the actual killing of a Jewish family. And it's a very vivid picture, a very stable picture that's composed carefully by the photographer following kind of the rule of thirds, um, showing the landscape, showing the crime scene, showing the killers with their um, guns pointed and the blast of the smoke, uh, the halos of smoke are visible as well. And, and there I was saw a date these- on the, uh, 
Yes. I'm sorry, and yeah, they, there was a date on the picture too. They turned it over and they knew that I was, uh, had worked on Ukraine, that I was, that was my area of expertise. And that's why the archivist came up to me with the journals and said, hey, Wendy, um, this was taken in Ukraine on October 13th, 1941, in a small town called Mirapol, which is about 100 miles west of Kiev. And um, coincidentally, I had worked on that region in my, on my dissertation, so I knew the records from that region fairly well, especially the German documents and had been traveled through that area as well. I knew the terrain. Um, but the striking, immediately striking part of the image was the Ukrainians shooting side by side with the Germans, shoulder to shoulder. And in my prior work, um, I had uh, studied the Ukrainians as collaborators. Mostly they were guards at the camps or they were escorting Jews to the killing sites in these forests and fields where they were shot uh, about a million, more than a million Jews shot in Ukraine. Um, that's the local Ukrainians were very much a part of this. But there was a lot of resistance to the fact that Ukrainians also shot. Like, why would the Germans arm Ukrainians whom they considered to be inferior, kind of untermenschen, as they call them? But here indeed was incontrovertible evidence that they were actually also um, shooting their Jewish neighbors. What is amazing to me, and you described this early on in the book, is that of all the death that occurred in the Holocaust, millions of people, tens of millions of people, pictures of the death actually happening are few and far between. So much so that in your book, you actually count them and, and you run through them really quickly in like one paragraph. And you, you, know, you can put them on your fingers and toes. And um, that, as you described, was by design of the Nazis. Why did they understand, or I should say, what did they understand about how the proliferation of personal photography could slow down their efforts to exterminate the Jewish people? These are the ironies of this history as far as what is the context? What's emerging in the 1930s and 40s and this, and then you have to kind of position that against this Nazi campaign of genocide, a state-sponsored campaign of genocide. So in the 1930s and 40s, we have the introduction of the portable camera, of the snapshot camera. Um, it was the camera craze, the hobby photography was taking off. By 1939, 10% of the German population owned these cameras. Uh, you know, Agfa, Zeiss Icon, of course, Kodak here in the United States. And the camera um, had been a very important tool actually in the history of genocide, going back to the genocide in, that occurred in the Congo in the late 19th century, um, that was documented with the camera. Uh, and King Leopold at that point was exposed by the camera. Mark Twain said that was his undoing the camera. Uh, so we know already that cameras were important not only for taking personal family photographs, but also in the pursuit of crimes and justice and criminal photography. Uh, so we have, this interesting combination of ordinary people carrying cameras and having the potential to document these crimes in the way that we see in social media today. Um, and the craze of, of purchasing and, and taking photos during the war, uh, 15,000 photojournalists were embedded by Goebbels in the various theaters of the war and took about 3.5 million images of the war. So it was not only the most destructive war um, historically, but it was also um, the most photographed. Um, and of course, we have our own record of, of the war in the Pacific, for instance, very iconic images. But what is- So we have the- 
Yeah, well, I was just going to ask, so what the is cameras, striking okay. is, that, is that we've seen so many pictures of people lined up and of the train tracks and of what the trains looked like and of what the you know outsides of the gas chambers looked like and all these other things, um, the scenes of destruction in Europe. Um, but we seldom, and I, and I didn't know this till I read this, that we seldom see the picture of the actual death taking place. So how has that yeah. shaped our understanding of this, of the Holocaust? It's a great question. And there've been quite a few books on Holocaust photography um, and, and cultural critics have been uh, discussing this for decades. Susan Zontag and earlier Hannah Arendt talked about Holocaust images as an instance of truth, an instant of truth. Um, so a long, very interesting discussion that I uh, refer to in my book, I don't get too deep into it, but the fact is that uh, the, the body of material that we have that we would call kind of Holocaust photographs are mostly from liberation taken at in 45 when the allies liberated the camp. So we see corpses, uh, really horrific graphic scenes from Bergen-Belsen. We see survivors standing gaunt, you know, before the gates of Dachau or in Majdanek, or sorry, or uh, Mauthausen. Uh, and those photographs though don't show us, they show us dead victims and they show us emaciated survivors. Uh, we also have a lot of material from the Germans themselves. For instance, at Auschwitz-Birkenau, a very famous album that was created for the commandant that was a kind of practice, professional practice among the Germans to create these photo albums for their superiors. Look what a great job I did, right? The clearing of the Warsaw Ghetto, the arrival of Jews at Birkenau, the selections in 1944. But they don't, you know, they didn't want, obviously, documentation of the act of murder. That's the absolutely most incriminating kind of document. So we have victims kind of at their deportation sites being marched to their deaths. But that actual moment of murder, uh, we know was there were photos taken. The Nazis kept, Himmler kept issuing orders, um, reintroducing the ban on taking such photos. We have documents in which he says, stop taking these photos. And they were systematically confiscated. Of course, after the war, the perpetrators or those who were witnesses that close up who took these photos, then tried to destroy them or suppress them or hide them because they were so incriminating. So yes, it's true. We have among the kind of murder images, um, a relative handful, you know, out of 100,000 that are digitized at the museum and available on the web, you know, we have a dozen uh, that we can that, that depict this actual act of, of murder. And of those, we don't know like, who is the photographer, who is the person in the picture, you know, where was this taken? And how has the lack of pictures influenced our view of all this 75 years on now? Well, it does create that uh, opening as far as anyone who might doubt or question what exactly happened when one was pushed into a gas chamber or when one was shoved to the edge of town at the, you know, and forced to stand at the, at the pit or a ravine and shot. So these photos are important for establishing the truth as Hannah Arendt uh, stated about Holocaust photos, instant of truth. And that's important to uphold. We don't want any possibility. I mean, this is something that Eisenhower said when he uh, liberated Ordruf. You know, he was afraid that, that this history might be questioned that it might be um, skewed as propaganda. And I, when I started on this journey in 2009, I could not have imagined the situation we're in today where there is doubt about this history, where there is doubt and truth, we live in a kind of post-factual world. So I feel like this book is also kind of, uh, is important because it's reaffirming these very basic fundamental facts of what happened. 
Tell us where the Holocaust is on October 13th, 1941, the day the picture is taken, and how those months became kind of a turning point as the Nazis begin to ramp up the killing machinery. Absolutely. Uh, those who have read the history and know well know that the summer of 41 was a turning point. It's an important chapter in the decision making and Hitler's uh, step and his instructions to his uh, uh, subordinates, especially to Himmler. So in the summer of 1941, with the invasion of the Soviet Union, the Nazis viewed their conquering of the East as the titanic struggle, as the existential moment for its thousand year Reich to defeat Judeo-Bolshevism in their, in their uh, ideology, in their worldview, was going to secure their future. And in fact, in the summer of 41, so it, during this military conquest, what they called a war of destruction. So they already understood the war as not only a military campaign, but one that would combine conquest on the front with behind the lines in the occupation zones, mass destruction of the civilian population of so-called you know, racial enemies and inferiors, starting with the Jews. So the Jews had already been ghettoized in Poland at this point when the war broke out in 1939, but now we're moving into the phase of going after the victims and, and hunting them down and shooting them outright, not death by you know, conditions in the ghetto through starvation and spread of disease, but now outright killing. Before we get, oh, go ahead. Before we get into um, the descriptions and what you were able to analyze from the pictures, um, I do want to just ask in general here, um, you see the killings that are depicted in this picture, or at least those types of killings, people were taken to the edge of town and shot as being personal, that the victims may even know their executioners in the case of these pictures, um, and that these are in some ways vengeful killings because of the way these small towns work. So can you just talk a little bit about what we know about how these types of attacks um, developed? Uh, absolutely, I mean, I'm clearly a more than a student of this history, I, I really enjoy your questions. <laughs> you know, in the summer of 41, Hitler said to his allies, I find this is, is very uh, kind of representative of this moment too, his ally, his Croatian ally, Marshal Kvatanek, he said uh, that this campaign in the East um, uh, will succeed when there is no Jewish family, he refers specifically to Jewish families, uh, left in Europe. He was concerned, Hitler was concerned that the children of the victims that to go after the men, first of all, as the most threatening, the able-bodied men, but to, to not, if, if one didn't exterminate the entire population, then in the future, the children would rise up. And he mentioned this historically, he had his own sense of history as far as um, when Jews had been driven out of Europe, whether it was the 15th century expulsions from Spain or various episodes, he said, they always come back. Uh, the, the, the children come back and avenge. So it was that kind of ferocity and that kind of determination, what they called the final solution that you know, crystallized in that, in that momentous period in the summer. And the photo really speaks to that because first of all, these are open air shootings. There's nothing secretive. Um, there's nothing modern about it. It's not the gas chambers and kind of factory style killing that seems to remove the, provide the perpetrators with a sense of um, uh, uh, distance from, from the violence. These are very intimate kinds of experiences to the extent that in the photo we see the German killer, uh, you know, who is firing his gun. He's, he's got his arms kind of looks like he's resting his hand 
on the shoulder of the woman, maybe kind of keeping her in place. Um, the uh, Ukrainian militia, as you mentioned, these were their neighbors. They knew, they knew some of them by name. Um, and the fact that the killing of the family, which is the most intimate um, core unit of our existence and what it, you know, so much of what makes us human, the love of family members, and that was to be completely, that's, that's part of the dehumanization, that's part of the, the extreme cruelty on the part of the genocide heirs. And then of course, on the part of the victims, what did they, how did they experience that, right? The having to go to their deaths as a family unit like that, um, the, the, the added cruelty, the added sense of violation of what it is to be a human being is, is really, I think, clear in that image. Uh, I do want to say to our listeners that um, I know this is may not be the most comfortable episode to listen to um, or the brightest and cheeriest episode that we've done here on this show. Um, we've, we've, we've done episodes on the history of Seinfeld and on Mets baseball and things like that. Um, but uh, I just think this is a really important topic. And so I appreciate your listening along to it because um, we have to understand that, uh, that these are things that happened and that the only way to stop them from happening again is to understand how they did and to understand what happened during them. So I appreciate your listening along to uh, this sometimes difficult discussion. Um, at what point, doctor, do you decide that you must tell the entire story of this photograph and not let it remain on an island like so many of the photographs that we have around? They, they sit somewhere and then they just sit um, and we don't we forget the context of them. At what point did you decide you wouldn't let that happen with this photo and why? Well, really at the point of seeing it, because if you can imagine, as I pose these questions in my book, if you come across a photograph that depicts a murder scene, clearly an innocent family, you know, I mean, you can't even impose anything on it. It's just what it is. You see it, whether it's, happened in your lifetime, if, if a photo indicates that it's a contemporary photo or historical one. If one finds a photo of, you know, the photographs we have of lynchings, for instance. And I, you know, I don't know how much research has been done on those. And I hope, hopefully, um, as much as possible. I fear not. Uh, I see these photos, for instance, of lynchings in textbooks and so forth, and I don't see deep captions and I don't see deep studies on them. Um, and they're in wide circulation and they were in wide circulation at the time they were turned into postcards. And yet who are, who are the people in the photos? What happened to them? And so there's an ethical moment where you see something like that as a human being, you're offended, you're appalled, you're shocked, you're disturbed, you're haunted. But at some point you have to say, we need, this needs to be um, uncovered. This, the facts need to be established here. The people who were in that photograph didn't get that justice, didn't get that um, you know, or the depiction of them is not how they want to be depicted, obviously. So that's another ethical challenge. But perhaps in this case, I thought the, the perpetrators might even st still be alive because um, some of them were, you know, one of them was young, was a minor. He was under 18 when he was shooting. What did you find um, in Mirapool? And that is where the shooting happened. Um, tell us about this. And, and I, you know, I don't, uh, um, Tell us about this heroic search you went on because I consider it heroic. You'll probably wave me down and go, no, no, no. But, no. but, but, but it's a heroic search that you go on to find all these different things that are associated with this photograph, starting with the place itself. So talk about Mirapol and where that fit into World War II and into the context of destruction of Judaism and mm -hmm. what you found when you went there decades and decades later. Mm. 
Yeah, it is a, st- a story of, of discovery. The book is kind of a combination of, it's a little bit memoirish as far as the first person and the journey of discovery. Uh, I had a lot of help. Um, so I don't feel as if this was, as you say, heroic. I, I work in a fabulous uh, field of community of scholars. Holocaust research has taken off over the decades in the course of my lifetime. And one thing I, I really love about this field not only do we support each other tremendously, but there's so much work to be done. We kind of, when we were at a place like the museum where the photo came in, people really gather around the table and they say, okay, can you find out about this? What about that? What do you know about that? There is true collaboration, the best sense of the word, because there's a shared sense of purpose and um, mission and passion about this and trying to get the story right and trying to memorialize the victims and educate. So that ethos has, sustain me and it's also what propels the research and why this field um, you know that we can do this research um, in this community of scholarship. Now when I saw the photo I thought about how much Holocaust studies had um, advanced a lot of methods of historical research in a ways that maybe other scholarly communities had not. Scholars who worked on the French Revolution some decades ago, for instance, innovated different ways of looking at revolutionary theory and political culture and so forth. And as a graduate student, I was kind of trained on, on those kinds of advances. So I thought, well, maybe um, Holocaust studies could, we could kind of uh, show readers what's possible as far as research um, in general, um, but specifically to the Holocaust. So when I looked at the photograph, I immediately thought, okay, the Nazi documents, you know, the um, archival empirical record, the war crimes trials, um, the visual evidence here, the landscape, I picked apart the photograph um, uh, like a puzzle and pulled out, you know, the forensic archeology span piece would be on the landscapes. So I need to go back to the, to the crime scene and do that kind of detective work and talk to people who work in these kinds of investigations um, uh, you know, I didn't understand what the smoke, why the smoke was taking that formation in the image and contacted some, the FBI, I contacted people in the uh, attorney general's office in California and, 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 and then ballistics experts and had them look at it and got their feedback. So I was kind of going around showing this to different people. And then I teamed up with um, Yahad and Unum, uh, Father Dubois, who's been doing a lot of testimony collection in Ukraine, has been featured in 60 Minutes and so forth. And I wanted to see his whole operation and kind of critique it in a way and participate in it. And so I said, let's go and do your, like go to Mirapol and see um, what we can collect as far as Ukrainian testimony and go to the crime scene and tell me what you're finding as far as the landscape and the topography um, and uh, to what extent that that mass grave has been disturbed and can it be um, preserved in some way? Can it be marked and memorialized? Um, so I started, yeah. Well, I don't know how much you want to give away of the book, but I do want to ask, um, you know, if you can just describe what it was like to find it and stand at this spot where if you'd been standing there 75 years before you um, would have seen something horrible or been the victim of something horrible. Exactly. When we went to the uh, actual spot, the first time I went by myself, um, in 2014 with a, with a friend, an interpreter uh, who's from that region. And the second time I went in 2016 with Yahad and Unam. 
And the first time I went, I just had a drawing from the archival record and, and, and kind of retraced the steps of the victims from the center of town. And actually there were three murder sites in Mirapol. And so the first time I went, I, I didn't find the site that was pictured in the photograph. I found the site where other um, victims um, had been shot. That was an actual ravine. And the local, uh, a local person there took me to that site. Her grandmother was um, in Mirapol during the war. Um, I also discovered um, the history of Jews in Mirapol, uh, which had been completely, uh, you know, not erased, but just, you know, was in, was in shards. Like the Jewish cemetery was, there was graffiti on it. The, you know, it was a mess. There were booze bottles all over the place. There were the, sto the stones were trashed. When we went in 2016 and we found the actual site where the photograph was taken and it was findable because the earth was so, it was a moonscape. There were craters and there, the, the, the terrain was so messed up and the earth had clearly been, it had been exhumed. It had been vandalized. And we had these so-called uh, black diggers, kind of grave diggers. This is another phenomenon that my colleague Jan Gross has written about as well after the Holocaust. These communities, these Ukrainian communities, Polish communities knew exactly where the Jews were killed, knew exactly where they were buried, knew that they brought valuables with them to their deaths, their most precious valuables, including their wedding rings and, and photographs as well and, and Bibles. And they would go into these, you know, disinter these grave sites and plunder them. Also animals, once those were disrupted, you have animals feeding off of them. We have displacement of the soil because of the human remains and the, um, and the decomposition of the bones and all of these things that change the landscape and transform the landscape. And so there's a history of, of those places that's important, not only for detection, but as far as what we human beings do uh, to the terrain in, in these genocidal campaigns. And so we went back and I was with a, the French team, I was with a film crew and I, I just, we were standing there and it was raining. Uh, so there was the sound of the rain that was very gentle on the leaves and it was quiet and still. And uh, we went to this, um, to the ground and just started to move the ground a little bit like with our feet, with our hands and saw this white, saw white remains and reached down. And, and there we had, um, we could see skull fragments and vertebrae fat fragments because when the Soviets investigated this in the late 80s, they completely wanted to get the evidence of the victims and they brought in uh, bulldozers and heavy equipment and big trucks and just completely destroyed that site and brought those bones up to the surface. And they're still there. And I, it was in 2016. And I immediately called, um, we called the rabbi in Strasbourg. We, I mean, it was... And, you know, and of course that doesn't only violate, um, Jewish. it doesn't only violate Jewish tradition, it violates mm -hmm. humanity, which is that as you write in the book, the dead should not be disturbed. They deserve to lay in peace. Um, the other thing I found striking on your search here. So now that you've found the location, but you also describe searching for the killers. And one of the things you say is that it was conceivable very much so that if you were 20 in 1945, you could still be around a hundred years later and a lot, or uh, you, you could still be around 75 years later and alive. You could be about a hundred years old or so in the you know mid 2010s. 
So how did that fact that these folks could still be alive change your search and also change the weight on your uh, shoulders that you had to handle this in a certain way because of the responsibilities that you had? Right. I I definitely wanted to find the killers and the picture is so incriminating. I mean, if you show that, right, to a suspect, right, if you were able to identify that person from the record and so forth. Uh, So that was a priority. And the Germans in the photo, as it turned out, were not regular order police, were not SS. Another discovery, they were regular customs guards. Their task in this little town was to check packages at the railway station. This was not what they were trained to do. But the community of Jews in Mirapol at that time, um, uh, about a thousand Jews, it was a small town and the Nazis didn't set up headquarters there. They had a headquarters in a neighboring town. And the SS did come in on that day, the day before the massacre and went to the local canteen where these customs officials were playing Scott, this German card game, and just said, you know, we need to take care of the Jews in this community. We have this action we wanna plan. Who's, who wants to volunteer? Who wants to shoot Jews tomorrow? And these two guys I identified, uh, Boyd and, and Kuska, they stood up, Yavok, uh, this, hey, we, we wanna participate in this. They were known among their colleagues as being um, extreme anti-Semites um, and had violent tendencies and so forth. But this just doesn't come out uh, until 1969. Um, I found out that based on studying the uniforms, I studied these in the photo, you can see uh, where the badges are on the German uniforms, the buttons on the coat, the sleeve markings. And I determined that they weren't SS, they weren't regular army. They were another kind of uh, uniformed unit. In fact, these were the customs guards, but they were had been denounced by another customs guard, a member of that unit in 1969. And those documents were fascinating because I, the way it appears in the book and, and what I found out was this, one of the uh, former comrades of, of the killers, German killers, walks into a small police station in January, 1969 in his hometown and says to the, uh, official on duty, uh, the intake kind of officer there who fills out forms, he says, I want to report a crime (laughs) that occurred in 1941 uh, against Jews who were in uh, Ukraine. So it just was to me extraordinary that someone could just walk into a police station and say, I'd like to report a crime uh, that happened, you know, decades earlier. And that was key to uncovering the identities of the German killers. And just tell us where they were at when you discovered who they were. They were in West Germany, outside of Hanover and near Bremen. And one of them uh, could not be found, but one of them was interrogated. And he just perjured himself left and right. I, I had the photograph in front of me. I was reading his responses to his interrogators. And he said, the, you know, the Germans were there, but we didn't kill. Uh, he talked about uh, the Ukrainians as well who were there and tried to blame it on the Ukrainians. Uh, and they had thick descriptions, vivid descriptions of, of the massacre itself um, and the other testimony in there describing the, the singing, the, the, the Ukrainians were dancing around singing the, the totus lead, uh, the funeral march. Uh, so that there were good details in those German interrogations but filled with denials and, and, and lies about who actually did the killing. And what is the fate of those two? Where, you know, I mean, 
Well, they got they they were never they were never prosecuted. Those uh, German killers in the photograph. Mm. And so they just got away with it. Unbelievable. Um, uh, talk about your search for the photographer. Um, you know, what clues did you have as to who might have taken this picture? And what were his motives that you later find out for why he took the picture? And also, how does the picture become a turning point for him? Yes, the story of the photographer was the biggest surprise for me, because as I mentioned before, the image is so stable and vivid. It's seems to be taken in the open, not clandestinely, not through the seam of a, of a code, there's no obstruction, right? And uh, so we have, I, I, the journalists who brought this to me in 2009 from uh, the Czech Republic, they had the name of the photographer as well because he had been interrogated at least three times about these photographs uh, because they were so incriminating. He was interrogated in 43 uh, by the, in Bratislava by the kind of Slovakian Gestapo office uh, in 58 and again in 59. This photographer turned out to be a really decent guy. Right? So the darkness of this photo, the horror of this photo, the depressing nature of it, everything, any way you want to describe it, grim, shocking. And then there's this photographer and he turns out to be this shining light he becomes, he joins the resistance. He rescues, rescues Jews, hides them in the attic, goes back to his home in Slovakia, refuses to carry on with the war anymore, pretends to be sick, goes back during Christmas time and, and is, is able to avoid a redeployment further into Russia and towards Stalingrad. So he, he was in a security um, guard unit, Slovakian security guard. And so he gets a... Uh, reprieve there. He's able to stay back home in Slovakia. His hometown is Banska Bystrica. He pretends that he's uh, very sick uh, and mentally incapacitated and his wife is visiting him at this asylum and they're playing this, you know, pretending all of this while he's hiding these photographs. He then shows the photographs to Jews in his community saying, do not go to when you're being called to be deported to the East. This is what's going to happen to you. We have to resist this. One of the Jews uh, he rescues is a, a obstetrician gynecologist and he actually delivers his son um, into the world in 1943 in their house. So the photographer, that photo, which looked like he was a collaborator, he was complicit, was his turning point, was his enough moment. He's a young man in his twenties. This is not the war he signed up for. He, in fact, he didn't even want to put on a uniform. He was not um, that kind of person. Uh, he didn't belong to any political parties. He considered himself apolitical. He loved photography. He, his, I met his family. They had these wonderful stories about him. He, he liked to draw beautiful pictures and he liked to dance and have parties. And, you know, so this really just destroyed him in many ways. Um, he didn't tell his children, didn't share these photographs with his children, didn't tell them the horrors that he had witnessed, but they knew that he was um, haunted by this history, that, that this war was uh, still with him, that he had what we would probably call today um, a post-traumatic kind of uh, stress disorder, like this was part of their story too. But he, um, yeah, he, he became a resistor because of this, because of what he witnessed. What were you able to find out about 
this poor family. Um, you got tantalizingly close. Um, I was rooting for you as I was reading yeah, this book. Yeah. I was like, come on, one more clue, one more clue. Um, uh, before, maybe even before you answer that, um, you do notice that there is a second child in the picture. And I didn't notice it at first. And I don't think you did either, at least mm-hmm. the way it sounded in the book. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just tell us about noticing that second child and how that helps you start to go on this journey of figuring out who these poor victims were? Well, with the uh, advantages we have now of different technologies and zooming in and zooming out and digital imagery, uh, that helped a lot. That's also part of the story as far as what I mentioned before, the different methods and tools that we have available to us to discover that we need to employ and and take advantage of. So I was able to, um, with my tech folks, kind of zoom in and zoom out, out on this. Um, I also, the the photograph was displayed in an exhibit at the museum, a temporary exhibit, and they had a very large, they blew it up and it was, you know, on the wall. And I studied it in that form as well. I actually was observing visitors at the museum while they were looking at it too. That was uh, interesting. And so at at one point I started to look and I realized that the woman was standing in a kind of perpendicular um, position. She wasn't kind of buckling under the weight of the blast of the gun. She wasn't kind of falling on her knees, but she was standing kind of in a stiff posture and that there was something in front of her um, and that there was light passing through kind of on her lap uh, in between her legs. And then I looked and I looked and I realized that I was seeing the contours of a little, of another child of like a little behind and some legs and, um, and the child was, was, was on her um, lap in front of her and she was trying to like hold it or protect it. Um, and I, could, and I could see a little scarf. Um, and then there is another photograph because our photographer took five photographs that day. As I dug into his story, I found more photographs from that day. He had a camera, that, that portable camera he had, that Zeiss icon, uh, the film roll he had could take seven pictures. So I'm getting the technical side of the camera. And so we found five altogether. And this one is the central image but by looking at the other images, he took a picture at the end from above looking down into the pit. And um, when you zoom in on that, you see the, the, um, the tangle of, of, of corpses and bodies in the pit. You can actually see this woman's polka dot dress. She's, and she's still holding the hand of the little boy um, and there's another child. So then I realized that there was a woman, approximately you know, a middle-aged woman, a child probably born you know, between 35 and 39, and then another child maybe born in the early. So I was starting to construct a kind of family unit that then brought me into the world of genealogical research, which I conducted at Yad Vashem. And that was the kind of memorial work as far as research work of recreating those family trees um, that had been completely, you know, cut down by the Nazis. And, and, figuring out based on lists of victims. We only had about 460 victims who could be identified after the war by name in family units. That's half of the victims in the town, right? So it's really a needle in a haystack. Half of the victims in Ukraine, um, uh, mostly children, have not been identified. I mean, we have wonderful databases of of Jewish family uh, genealogy and victims' names and um, that community that has put that together is fantastic. And, um, and we read their names out 
during Holocaust Remembrance Week, like last week and in April here, we have Days of Remembrance. And we have the impression that we know these victims by name. We can mention them like Anne Frank, for instance, but in fact, they're not all identified. And in the end, I was able to identify a cousin of potentially a relative of, of, the, little, of the little boy. But the woman who submitted this um, page of testimony, Yad Vashem, about her Jewish relatives who were killed in Mirapol in the park in October, 1941, like everything started to come together there. But when I interviewed her in Southfield, Michigan, and she was not in Mirapol during the war, she'd been evacuated with the Red Army and had left, she couldn't identify it. I mean, their faces are obscured in the smoke. We don't see them head on. I found another family uh, photograph of, of victims, a uh, family that had been killed in that same massacre. But I, and, and it looked like them. And if you buy the book, you'll see that image of that family photograph. You'll see that little boy's face looking at you as opposed to in the atrocity image, you see his, the back of his head. And it looks like the same exact boy. Um, and, and in fact, my, the woman I spoke to in Michigan in her family photo album that she showed me, her relatives were wearing, her mother was wearing a polka dotted dress, the same material that this woman has on, right? So it seemed like I was really close, but I, could, I couldn't get a positive identification. And of course, there was no way I, I was going to misidentify the victims. You've got a book here, which is satisfying, I'm sure, personally to at least have that. But in yourself, did you find satisfaction in what your search turned up? Did you feel that you were able to bring closure, closure to these victims? Did you feel you were able to bring them some sort of a measure of justice by deeply reporting this moment, this photograph of their demise? I don't think, well, as a researcher, you have a sense of accomplishment or achievement when you do figure certain things out, like the killers and the photographer and the stories that I uncovered in the process. And that is, that feels good. That's, that's, you know, those are moments, kind of aha moments and moments they do, you have a sense of closure because you're like, you feel confident that that's, that's who that person is and that's what happened. And not being able to precisely identify the victims was really frustrating. Um, I so wanted that. I so wanted to deliver that to, <laughs> to my readers as well. But at some point I had to stand back and, and accept that ambivalence and accept that reality of, of genocide that we're working against erasure, we're working against forgetting, we're working against the passage of time. Um, and that the missing missing, which is one of the chapters in the book, is this other reality. We can't kind of take comfort or kind of um, somehow be satisfied or placated by the identifying a portion. It's the, the fact is that that many have never been registered as missing. And that's the part of genocide that I think we often forget that there are so many who are not registered. No family members could register them. So where do you start? And you kind of work around with, a, with one source like this. Um, I was happy to actually, if, if I could use the word happy, um, I was delighted when I saw that other photograph of that family at Yad Vashem. Because uh, I, first of all, I thought it could be them. 
And that was a, an amazing moment. Um, but then it was another family. And then I realized, well, if I hadn't conducted this research for this family, I wouldn't have found this other family, or I wouldn't have been able to speak to this survivor, or I wouldn't have pieced together the history of Mirapol and the Jews there, or worked on the other survivor testimony to really show in vivid detail what happened, um, to talk to those Ukrainian witnesses. And as painful as those stories were for them to retell, to get that on record, right? Uh, to get on record that those Germans got away with it, to get on record that the Ukrainians didn't. Uh, and to also go to that site and establish that this site needs to be protected. This is what happened. This is um, uh, reality in a real material sense as far as what's there and what remains. So there were um, achievements, you know, there were discoveries. Uh, and the fact that I didn't identify the Jewish family or wasn't willing to make that leap um, with as far as I got, uh, it, it, it's not closure, but is genocide, the history of genocide, is the Holocaust supposed to be closure? No, it's this continual uh, search and discovery and the material uh, resources to do so are vast and the source material is vast. And that's, that's you know, that's what I do. <laughs> um, How, one of the points you make in the book is that the survival of the Jewish family is a way of defeating the Nazis again and again. Can you describe what you mean by that? Well, the survival of the Jewish family is not only the continuity of Jewish life and existence, uh, thousands of years of existence of incredible uh, cultural development, learning, you know, contributions to society, everything that is Jewish history that is our history, uh, global history, and all that we can learn from that. So, you know, it to celebrate that and to learn from that is how we resist genocide, how we work against it as scholars and as human beings. And to, you know, in the course of this book, for instance, even learning more about Jewish burial practices and traditions and the Dubuk, this Yiddish poem, or sorry, Yiddish story, this play that originated in this town to recapture that culture and that life while I was dealing with such a, a, a such a photograph, um, you know, it's just kind of that working against um, this, this remnant. In the beginning of the book, I, I mentioned wanting to kind of blow out the frame of the photograph that to not have that image of that family be the one that remains. Um, but to try to tell the story of what happened before, what's going on in the picture, what happened afterwards, what life, what was lost besides these families in those places is, is what um, really motivates this work. And I think is the kind of ethical historical uh, agenda there. Genocide, and this is kind of the you know billion dollar question. This is why we're doing this episode, and why um, I would assume that most historians of the Holocaust continue to study it and argue it's so important we all learn from it. Um, the question is, um, if genocide is essentially regulated and legal homicide, how do we stop that from happening again? Um, and then the the one B question is how long is the distance between a free society and a society that decides the so-called outsiders 
a first who they are and b that they must be violently removed um mm. what are the warning signs how do we mm. stop this from happening again mm. there are so many warning signs and i think we tend not to look them up sometimes not to add them up um and we are also concerned often in this day to jump to conclusions. I see there's often a reluctance to use the word genocide or even ethnic cleansing when we have violent conflict emerging like right now in um, Azerbaijan or you know, what's the Boko Haram now is, seems to be uh, back, back at work as well. Um, or when we look at regions where there, has, there have been cycles of violence, uh, whether it's Rwanda or in the Congo, um, to, to just monitor these things very closely because they uh, can it occur over a kind of long durée over, uh, over generations, um, or they can become very violent, you know, they can escalate very quickly um, and, and kind of explode in a way, and then you have to respond to that. So it's um, something that, that requires paying attention and, and carefully watching, but it starts with ideas. It starts with our human uh, capacity to hate. Uh, as much as we are defined as humans with our capacity to love, we, have, we, we are also pretty skilled at coming up with hateful ideologies and anti-Semitism as, anti as one book calls us the longest hatred. Uh, and so these ideologies become ever more kind of um, multifaceted and insidious and multi-pronged. They extend over generations. Uh, they seem to operate in places like anti-Semitism where there are no Jews. You can have anti-Semitic hate where there are no Jews residing in those communities, like in the former Eastern Europe, where the Jews were wiped out in places like Mirapol. And I encountered, and I encountered anti-Semitism when I interviewed some of my Ukrainian <laughs> witnesses. Um, so these are, start with these ideas and we have to take words very seriously and um, hateful rhetoric and incendiary rhetoric as we have to believe it when we hear it as not just propaganda or, or just words. Uh, and a lot of it also became, uh, starts at home. I work a lot on uh, gendered violence and gendered history of violence. And there are things that are tolerated in our, the way we're socialized in our family units and at home that can, whether it's hateful speech, uh, prejudice, violence, domestic abuse, uh, disrespect. I mean, very fundamental ways of behavior. Uh, at home and in our classrooms. And I think, you know, often we don't uh, stop and, and put the brakes on that or, or challenge uh, a, a colleague or a friend or a neighbor or even a family member. Uh, so some of these very fundamental uh, issues are, are at work um, in these situations as well to be aware of. This isn't necessarily a Holocaust-centered question, um, but I wanna ask what we can learn from all the photographs that we see every single day on social media, on the news, um, on our phones. Um, what can we learn <clears throat> from your reporting on this photograph? Um, you know, you opened up this whole world just from this one snapshot in time that took place 75 years ago. What can we learn about our own lives and all these photographs we're surrounded by when we see them that are other snapshots in time, most of them much happier and much friendlier than what we're talking about today. But what can mm -hmm. we learn about the way we record human existence and what we should mm -hmm. think about when we see a random picture on social media or something like that? Mm -hmm. Well, we have to develop a uh, literacy as a, in a way, an eye as far as uh, the eye of the observer and keen observation 
and what, what that entails in the way that we are critical readers. We have to be critical viewers. We are flooded with imagery. Sometimes we're not quite sure how uh, authentic it is if it's been touched up or, or airbrushed or what have you. So they can be easily manipulated and we have to be able to detect that. Uh, on the other hand, some of the imagery, you know, some would argue, oh, you're gonna become desensitized. We just, there's so much violent imagery out there that we're just not, we're not gonna be as empathetic or we're just not gonna care or our attention spans are so short. Um, and so my book is really trying to argue that first of all, we have this violent imagery around us, including Holocaust imagery that has become iconic and is blown up and displayed in museums and is on Wikipedia and, and all kinds of websites all over. Um, let's uh, take a look at that. Let's question that and, and um, be aware of its prevalence, but, not, but, but take on the responsibility of <clears throat> trying to figure out what's in that picture, what the context is, who, what, where, when, not just think of it as kind of public domain, it's out there, you know, but, uh, but understand it as a source, as something to be studied and researched. Because these images put a lot of things in motion, sometimes more than the written word, because of the world, the visual world we live in. I mean, that image of that little boy who um, uh, uh, washed up on the Bodrum beach, um, right, a little boy in a little red t-shirt, which kind of propelled a change of policy in, the, in, in Germany and Europe as far as immigration that became iconic. Or we have images from Vietnam that also um, trigger certain kind of uh, understanding. But, but those images can't be stand-ins for history, right? They can't just be out there like the, the image of the gates leading to Auschwitz-Birkenau, right? People know that image, but then if you ask a, a young person, you know, what is that? They don't. They they might say Auschwitz if most young people don't really know the word or know what was really going on there. Um, so if we're going to live in this world of imagery, um, you know, we we have to figure out what those thousand words are that <laughs> that image is is telling us, and you know, not be too complacent about um, the proliferation of them, but uh, but seek to study them, and and you will discover a lot as I as I uh, do with this image. What would you say to the victims in the picture we're talking about today if they could hear you right now? Oh. Hmm. Well. It's a tough question. I'm sitting here <clears throat> thinking myself. It is a tough question. <laughs> It's a tough question. And, and as I've engaged in this over the years, I've certainly in my mind um, had kinds of conversations, right? Had kinds of thoughts about the victims and my connection to them in this work. <clears throat> I guess it's, you know, we, now we know what happened. We, we see what happened to you. We, this, we know what happened to you. This is, it's not a mystery. Um, you didn't, you didn't die in vain. You were not, you were, you were, your lives were cut short. This was wrong. And in some ways we're sorry. Yeah. That's the word that I was, I, I, I would sum up my thoughts. Of course you would say more, but my thoughts would just be, I'm really sorry. The world couldn't protect, protect you. Yes. You know, yeah. really sorry that 
you know, I mean, sorry sounds ridiculous when you think about what happened, but that would be the basis of a more, hopefully more eloquent um, and longer explanation of my feelings to them. But anyway, um, Dr. Wendy Lauer, the author of The Ravine, a family, a photograph, a Holocaust massacre revealed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Certainly check out that book and also her previous book published in 2013, Hitler's Furies, German Women in the Nazi Killing Fields, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.